Welcome to the second season of Inside Indie Games, brought to you by the UK Games Fund. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes to see what it takes to create a great indie company and to craft the games that people long to play. On this season, we'll be joined by a variety of industry experts on each episode. They'll be giving you their insights and advice on topics ranging from selling and marketing to dealing with setbacks and bouncing back from failure. On this episode, though, we're diving into the subject of acquisitions and mergers. We'll take the point of view of an indie company who are thinking about their long-term plans. Do they want to aim to be acquired by someone bigger? What's the pros and cons they should weigh up? And how do they position themselves to be a good target for acquisition if they do decide to go down this route? To kick things off, we're going to hear from Gina Jackson of world-leading video game publisher Sold Out. So, what are the advantages of being acquired by a larger company? I think there are massive opportunities to being acquired. Uh, You increase the investment, you increase the skill sets around you, Um, The learning potential goes through the roof, Um, but also you have an opportunity to to live out your real dreams. You're able to bring support people around you. Um, You're able to bring in much greater investment so that you can deliver a larger scale project with the comfort of knowing that you've got the cash flow Um, and you can relax into the development and be really creative. Paul Kilduff-Taylor, Mode 7 Games. So I think some of the advantages of being acquired or potentially being acquired by a larger company would include the ability to have a structure around you which allows you to focus purely on development. If you look at some of the more successful acquisitions and and some of the, you know, relationships that have gone on long term, it's because the acquirer has been able to put the founders of that original company sort of within their larger structure and kind of enable them to do what they do best. Um, Obviously, there's the financial side of it as well. So uh, your financial kind of focus shifts away from trying to build value inside your own company and and really into kind of providing a service in some ways for a larger partner. So it's a different type of financial focus that is the ongoing part of your career. But then obviously, hopefully, there would be the payoff of the the sale that gets you into that situation initially. Next up, Tara Reddy of Love Shark. Well, I mean, I think when you're an indie or a small company, you're just always fighting month by month or um, quarter by quarter to, to stay alive. Because you're always motivated by, you know, are you going to run out of cash? Are you going to monetize well enough? Um, so, you know, ha- having an acquisition or merger would mean that you have that support. Um, it may take some of the heat off, you know, like you could probably experiment and, and try different things and have a little bit more time for innovation um, versus having to always have the pedal to the metal. Um, and then I guess, I mean, the other thing, like I worked at a company Blipper um, before I started Love Shark and we had um, over 200 people and it was amazing because you just, whatever question you had or whatever thing, whatever you needed help with, there was always someone in the company who was an expert that could help you. Um, so just having that access to like people from all different sort of areas that you may not have, um, you know, in an indie I guess the other good thing about an acquisition or a merger, it may mean that you get some cash out. Um, So if you're a a founder who's been struggling for a lot of years and you've decided that you would just really actually like to get on the property ladder, etc. You know, that can be an opportunity to do that um, and maybe take some of the stress off you because the whole company isn't financially reliant on you 
um, running it, there's the sort of much bigger safety net. David Hamilton, Ninja Kiwi. Yeah, so I, I started a company called Digital Goldfish in 2005, straight from university. And we actually got acquired in 2012 from a New Zealand company called Ninja Kiwi. And we then changed, merged with Digital Goldfish into to Ninja Kiwi Europe. And it's probably been the best decision that, that we've ever done. So when we when we got acquired by Ninja Kiwi, we were a team of 14. And, and we were doing well for ourselves. Uh, but joining together allowed us to, to basically get the IP of the game that we were working on and allowed us to to, to cross-promote into our audience. So now we are a team of 30 in the Dundee office and about 35 in the New Zealand office. So you just immediately become, from a small developer, you become such a, a much bigger developer uh, and people people take note of that. So I personally, for my my findings, is uh, definitely mergers and acquisitions. It's what, what you aim for uh, when you go to start up a games company. But you've just got to make sure that the, the person who's buying you is the right the right fit for you. And here's Stephanie Warwick of Jolly Good Games. Outside of um, of Jolly Good Games, I previously worked for Future Games of London as they were acquired by Ubisoft, uh, the mobile department. So having seen firsthand, I've seen quite quite a few of the, the pros that did absolutely outweigh the cons. With the IP Hungry Shark Evolution already performing really well, having that additional uh, distribution channel and, of course, the namesake of Ubisoft attached just propelled it into into the billions of dollars rather than millions. Um, it's a hard one to shape, especially for very close-knit indie teams because you slowly have to give away some of your power. You slowly have to give in to... Can we change this? Can we add this marketing SDK? Can we potentially look at these markets? And by by give, handing over that sort of power to to like a larger publisher um, or a large, larger studio, you do have to sort of accept that it's not your company anymore. And that can be quite difficult for, for indies to do when you've built it from the ground up. Now, some indies are literally built to sell themselves. And that might be purely because they're, they're perhaps more money-driven, not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing whatsoever. Um, but um, it, it really it really depends on, on, on how you feel about your IP and how you feel about your team. Um, we, we personally aren't up for acquisitions ourselves. We're, we're not quite five years yet. Um, <laughs> although if someone came to us with a very big offer, we might be tempted. Um but uh, it is a really hard one to weigh up. And a lot of it is does fall down to creative control that you do lose from the con. But the distribution, the money that they can give you for, for marketing specifically, is something that's often overlooked by um, indies. You can make a fantastic game, but if nobody ever hears it, it doesn't matter that you made it, which is a problem that we had <laughs> with, uh, with Starbeard. All right, so now we're a bit more clued up on the advantages of being acquired by a larger company, but what about the potential downsides? You need to find the right fit. Um, You need to be bringing something to the party and they need to be bringing um, something back to reflect on on the skill sets that you have. Um, You need to watch out for fast growth companies, which can be exciting, but they also have an impact on on people 
uh, particularly on people's mental health. You need to have clear leadership within the, the group, um, a clear strategy. You need to create um, a support environment rather than one that has uh, conflicts and difficulties because people don't understand what their role's in or where they fit in or how they're going to deliver success. I've been through three major acquisitions and I've uh, the company I work for was acquired um, just before Christmas. Um, and it always takes a while for things to settle down and for people to understand their roles. But as long as you're mindful, particularly of your mental health, um, then they can be very, very successful. Well, you're going to be making a big shift in terms of lifestyle from being a founder of your own company to being an employee for someone else. Um, with that comes, you know, many different types of constraints. You may find yourself not in the role that you initially envisaged. Um, you may lose creative control over some of the IP that you've built up. You might see other products made with that IP that perhaps you don't like or perhaps that you, you're not involved with. So you really do have to be willing to give up a lot of control. And also you are really selling your long term upside. You know, you're, you're kind of calling it at a certain point and saying, well, our company's got to this size, it's got to this revenue level, um, it's got to this kind of level of prominence in the marketplace. And, and that's going to be it for us. You know, we're, we're now going to cash out uh, and we're just going to work kind of on an ongoing basis. I mean, obviously, there's different types of deals that can be structured in different ways. You know, you could go on and, and have sort of some revenue sharing or some bonuses or, or some kind of package that enables you to have a bit more of a share of upside. But that can be very variable and you're never going to get get um, access to the rewards on the same level you would do if you retained ownership. So it's really worth looking at just how that works across all different industries. Look, look at the tech industry. Obviously, it happens a lot there. But look at how other games acquisitions have worked on, on those terms and, and, and sort of where the founders end up and where the employees end up as well. Sometimes if you've um, built up a really good team and you're concerned for their future and, and their security, then uh, again, that's something that you'll lose control over. So you might want to think about that too. The difficulty, and I think the thing that puts a lot of companies off is just the freedom. Like a lot of people started at their own company because they wanted to have creative freedom, um, you know, to make to make their dream um, or their dream game. And you know, if you're working as part of a, a larger company, there's more stakeholders. They have the strategy that they need you to fit within. Um, so you may find that you get told no, or you get told you know, hurry up or you have to do things within a certain time frame, etc. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely got its pros and cons. Yeah, well, the last thing you want to do is, the thing about making games is it's, it's great fun. So you don't want that taken away from you and, and having a boss, basically, that tells you you've got to do this and you've got to do that. So, yeah, what one downside is you just you don't 100% get to do what you want to do anymore in terms of, if you want to make a rash decision, like we, we sponsored a football club, Dundee United, uh, on the shorts, and technically, as a business head, it's not worth it. But from uh, from your heart, it was something that me and my business partner really, really wanted to do, and we probably would would have continued that if it wasn't for the the acquisition. So it's just things like that that you you kind of you don't get to do anymore. Uh, but at the same time, it's better for the business anyway. One thing we've heard a lot about so far is that aspect of potentially giving up control. There's two ways to look at this. For some, giving up control might be a terrifying prospect. For others, they might relish the thought of handing over the business stuff to someone else and going back to doing the work that attracted them to the industry in the first place. There's a famous book called The E-Myth 
that talks about how, if someone is passionate about something, they shouldn't necessarily run a business doing that thing. That's because, nine times out of ten, you'll end up working on the business itself as opposed to doing the things you're most passionate about. I actually read that book as well. Um, So I read it when I was a vet and I was feeling very frustrated as a vet because I was working in small businesses and I didn't feel like the people that were running the businesses were really thinking about um, the bigger picture and how to look after the team and build culture, etc., and I read that book and I thought, yeah, actually, that's so true. When you're a small business owner, a lot of the time you're doing it because you want to create a product or create a service, not because you're good at HR or you're good at managing money or you're good at operations and spreadsheets and um, planning and all these things. So, yeah, for sure, if you get if you, um, you know, enter into an acquisition or merger, then it may be that all of that admin gets taken off your plate and you can just focus on the creative side, which Sounds quite nice, to be honest, doesn't it? Um, but the other thing is, like, what could, what could, can be tricky is if you've worked really hard to build a specific culture within your company, um, suddenly that gets really diluted and it almost gets absorbed into the, you know, the, the bigger company, if you're acquired by a bigger company. Um, so you may not be able to work in the same way that you want. Um, employees might not be able to have the same freedom that they, they maybe had um, when you were a startup. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, I think it, it is quite a common path for people that have, they've done a startup or, a, or an indie company and it's been years and they're just tired. Um, you know, someone can come in and take over all of the, the boring stuff and, and give them a bit more security. So definitely got its ups and downs, I would say. I think the majority of indies start off going, I've had this game idea in my head, Uh, And this is what I want to do. I want to go and make it and find some like-minded, passionate people to make it so. So that person would either be like the lead designer or the creative director. Then they don't really want to have to file their company on company house or do their taxes or make all these contracts and bits. But that has to be thrown in, obviously, to have a successful studio. So more and more, their days are not actually making the game. They're making sure that they've registered with Apple or whatever, and it takes away more and more. Now, if you could hand that over to to another company in a merger or acquisition, that's that's great, but it's kind of difficult to get to a position where you are acquirable if you're too busy making the game all day. And um, I've worked with loads of people that just just aren't able to do both. And when it comes down to, you need to choose whether you're a creative director or a CEO you, you, this is your company, you founded it, you need to be the CEO, and they just can't do it, they can't let go. And unfortunately, you can't see much more future in the company unless they can bring someone on that they are happy to give that control to. So it's a bit of a tough one, and I think it's it's all creative industries have the same issue. If you get into it from, from an artistic perspective, I want to pre- prepare or create something, you don't really want to give any of that up because that's your raison d'etre, that's why you started it. I think no one really understands the job opportunities until you see it in front of you and suddenly go, I could do that or I could be good at that or that really excites me. And I think that's where you have to see the opportunity of, okay, I got in this to make games. Is that what I want to do or is this other thing much more exciting? And I think in in all of that, you change your mind constantly, but that's okay. Um, I think as long as you're doing something that excites you and that you're good at, and those two things often go hand in hand. Um, 
you've got to be happy in work. It's it's where you spend most of your time. And if you're battling all the time, you're in the wrong place. Lifestyle is is a huge factor in this. You know, it, it's not not every acquisition is sort of you get your dream amount of money suddenly and it's and it's all wonderful. There, a, a lot of them, the majority of them, are more practical. Where it's a decision to to sell. I mean, there's obviously different circumstances under which you could sell. Um, you know, your company may not be doing as well as you wanted, and you may need that that sort of um, support network of a larger organization. Um, or it might just be a sort of quite a pragmatic sale where you you, you kind of figure that it, that it's a you know, a good outcome or a more reliable outcome, but it's not going to, you know, set you up for life or anything like that. So then it really does become about what what do you want to do day to day? What do you want your work to look like? Perhaps you're tired of running around wearing multiple hats, doing loads and loads of different things at once, um, and you want to specialize. And that that can be a good reason to sell your business um, and uh, or, or merge your partner up with someone else is that it gives you the ability to sort of define your, your role a bit better. So yeah, it, it's absolutely vital to think about uh, how things are going to be for you, how work is going to be for you and, and how your life is going to be subsequently. So if you're an indie company who's weighed up the pros and cons and you've decided that this is the road you want to go down, then what next? What makes an indie company an attractive prospect for acquisition? So we basically got bought for our tech. So we started our own game engine in 2005 and kept on working on it. And we were in mobile games before mobile games became what they are today. So we were kind of in a unique uh, situation where we got acquired because of our, our, our team and because of our engine, uh, how quickly we can make mobile games and the quality that, that, that we could do it on. But th- there's other ways that you could get acquired and set yourself up for it. Obviously, IP is a big one. So if you get a successful game or a successful IP that a, a, an acquirer looks for and thinks that they can do something with, then that's that's also a way to, to go. Uh, but then would you sell if you already had a very, very successful IP? So with us, we, we licensed a game called Bloons, which was a, a Flash game. Uh, and it was one of the most popular Flash games of all time. So we licensed Bloons and took it over to mobile. And then obviously when the app stores came out, that's when it really took off. So we, we were a very rich company, but we didn't have any... IP ourselves, so when we we got acquired by Ninja Kiwi, then obviously Bloons became our IP, and then for Ninja Kiwi, they got their mobile dev team. It's changed a lot in the last few years, but the way I read the market at the moment is um, you need to have proven KPIs, which has always been the case. But if you had a very good lineage with some of the the people in your studio, say they're veterans, oh, this person's worked on Command and Conquer and Civilization, that's a very acquirable um, status to have. Um, But other than that now, you pretty much need to have at least a game launched, at least, which might might seem like a, a simple thing, but a lot of indie games just never get launched. And you need to have some sort of proof in the pudding that you have been able to create something that people want. And then sort of in your back pocket, these are our next sort of three ideas that we want to work on for the next 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 five years or so, so that you, you're not just a, a one-trick pony. So that's sort of like the basic stuff when you wanted to talk to someone about merging. or, or it, it, this, It's the same sort of um, ask if you wanted to talk to a publisher to show that you, you do have longevity and, and you are actually able to perform. So there's many, many things that are useful. A lot of the time, it, it's not what you know, it's who you know as well. So a lot of the time you'll see things funded or 
were acquired and you're like, I've never even heard of that. But then you realise, oh, it's X, Y and Z's uh, second cousin. <laughs> That's how they were able to be successful, especially in, in the UK games industry. Everybody knows everybody. Indie companies are often quite specialised in a specific area. So, for example, we are specialised in camera games, so like augmented reality or machine learning games on mobile phones. Um, So what that would mean for an acquirer is that they can get a team who have a very deep knowledge on a specific area and have had, you know, years of experience in the area and then bring that in to sort of widen their own proposition or their range. Um, as opposed to what often happens in bigger companies is they'll say, right, let's put a team on this and they'll give a team sort of six months to explore an opportunity and to prototype and test, etc. Um, but obviously they can only skim the surface when they do that and it takes internal resources away from other things. So an acquisition is kind of a tried and tested team of people that can work together, that have knowledge in a space. Um, and, you know, by by existing for however long they have, which is usually years and years, um, they've shown that they have the the resilience and the passion for that area. Um, so I think they're just able to bring a much deeper level of, of um, knowledge, you know, to the acquirer. I think it's if you know your field and you can create an area of expertise. So if you're particularly good in a genre or you're particularly good at... Um, free to play you've got to be able to augment the other company with some expertise um, and maybe that's in production process maybe that's in de-risking a project maybe that's in a particular genre or a, a mechanic or you develop on a particular format that that company wants to move into whether it's uh, mobile or whether it's handheld um, y- you need to you need to be bringing something um, and you just need to work out what that thing is, um, build on it and show that's your expertise. I think there can be a few different factors in this. Um, so you, you should first think about the team, um, the founders, what are their expertise? Perhaps they have particular technical expertise or design expertise, you know, really good creative directors who have cut their teeth on lots of different successful projects are very rare. Um, and sometimes uh, a company will be acquired to get access to that talent. Another factor is definitely IP. So if you have a very successful game, it's done really well, that's sold really well, that has a really good community, um, you may be acquired sort of on the basis of that and the acquirer might want to take that game on and develop it further. Um, And then finally, there is, you know, just a kind of innate, value that's in the company is it is it a profitable company is it doing well um is it well structured does it does it retain ownership of all the things it's made uh that's that can be a very um important factor in terms of in terms of a sale you know if you retain all of the ownership and everything that you've done maybe you didn't partner with publishers or you self-published everything and you've kept all of that in-house uh, that can make you a bit more of an attractive prospect so i think the, the majority of acquisitions particularly of smaller companies tend to be about about team and ip particularly in games um, you have seen some instances where a larger publisher or a larger organization will buy a game so for example paradox with prison architect and introversion they didn't acquire the whole company but they acquired prison architect and took that on as a product and, and kind of are developing that in, in in their own right so that can be a a a good sort of exit for you know a a long-term very large significant game project can sort of have a mini exit in that kind of way well thanks for listening to this episode of inside indie games brought to you by the uk games fund 
A big thanks also to our contributors Gina, Paul, Tara, David and Stephanie. We'll be hearing more from them throughout this season and you'll find links to their work in the episode show notes. Be sure to hit subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. That way you'll never miss an episode as new ones will be delivered to you automatically the moment they're published. And for all previous episodes, as well as subscribe links, head on over to ukgamesfund.com slash podcasts. That's ukgamesfund.com slash podcasts. 